right, good morning. Good morning. Am I on? Can you hear me? Uh, I just want to start by saying how much I love this church. I, I am just so grateful for the love that you have for Christ. Matt and Michelle, thank you. Thank you for reaching out to Arlene. Oh, man, this is not a good way to start out here. This is not how I want to be starting this. But thank you. Thank you for being such a beautiful church. All right, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the first of four sermons that are going to be focusing on the church. My sermon is going to focus on the most important stone in the church, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Next week, Jared's going to focus on all the other stones as they are joined together as a church. And then Bill will talk about us as a people for God's own possession. And then we'll conclude with a message called the church in the world. So this is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You know, sometimes we miss things that are really valuable. There are some great stories about people who throw things away or sell things really cheaply when they're worth a ton of money, sometimes millions, all because they don't realize how much it's worth. Nigel Reynolds was a journalist for the Daily Telegraph in the UK. He was the first person to interview J.K. Rowling after the release of the first Harry Potter novel back in 1998. She gave him a copy of the first edition of the book. This was one of 300 copies. He got back to his office, looked at it for a second, and said, who would ever read a book about a young wizard and tossed it in the trash? That copy is worth over $60,000. In the basement of a house in North Jersey, a small, slightly damaged oil painting was found after the owners of the house died. The family was told by art collectors there's probably worth between five dollars and $800. What these art experts didn't realize was that it was a long-lost painting it's a small painting, but it was a painting by Rembrandt created in his late teens, probably around 1624. It's called The Unconscious Patient. And I think we have a picture of that. 
Um, maybe. So there it is. Uh, instead of being worth $500 to $800, it's over $4 million in value. When Sylvester Stallone wrote the script for Rocky, he could not find anyone to produce or to buy this script. He shopped his script relentlessly, and he was rejected hundreds of times. Everyone who looked at it thought it was worthless, until finally United Artists purchased the script for a measly $35,000, and fortunately agreed to let Stallone have a percentage of the earnings it grossed $200 million. You know, sometimes we miss things of great value, like Jesus. Sometimes we fail to understand the incredible value of Christ. I want to ask three questions that I think will help us to understand this passage. Who is Jesus? What has he done? And how do we respond to him? So number one, who is Jesus? Now, there are many things we could say about who Jesus is, but this passage focuses on the earthly Jesus who was rejected by men. Did you pick that up in verse Four. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So Jesus was rejected by men. Now the picture here is of a stonemason. So this mason is he's building a building, and the most important part of that building is the cornerstone. The cornerstone has to be absolutely perfect because everything is built off of that cornerstone. If that cornerstone is off, the rest of the building is off. It has to be perfectly square. And so this picture is this mason. He's looking at his stones, and he's trying to find the perfect one. He picks one up that is perfect, but he just discards it. He throws it away. He, he trashes it. This is exactly what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago? He came to this earth to rescue us. He actually came first to his own people, the Jews. He was born into a poor Jewish family. He grew up in a town with a bad reputation. And when he was 30 years old, he declared that he was the chosen Messiah, that he was sent by God to rescue men and women from their sins. He declared that he was this cornerstone. He was the cornerstone for a new house that God was building. See, God was creating a new people, a people that would come from every nation and tribe and tongue. And so Jesus went and he preached a message of peace and hope, a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But people didn't want to hear this message. They didn't want another king. They didn't want to be part of Jesus' new kingdom. So they rejected him. But to God, to God, he was chosen 
and precious. He was chosen by God to rescue us. And to God, he was, he was precious. Now, that word has changed a little bit over the years. It's, it's started now to mean weakness. It can, you can see weakness and precious. That's not what this means. It means that Jesus is valuable. He is infinitely valuable. I mean, just, just think about how God felt about Jesus. We're talking about the Son of God, the, the second member of the Trinity who has spent all eternity loving the Father and all eternity being loved by the Father. The Father loves his only Son and delights in him more than all the delight in the world combined. Jesus is more precious and valuable to the Father than anything. But he was worthless to men. He came to save them, but they, they rejected him. They cast him aside. They, they discarded him. They actually killed him. They stripped him and whipped his naked body and tortured him in utter shame. This is what men did to the Son of God. This is what we did to him. It was our sin that held him on the cross. We despised him. We rejected him. We sent him to his death. But thank God that was not the end of the story. Jesus rose from the dead. That's why he's called the living stone. He's no longer dead. And He's no longer full of shame. See, Jesus is once again honored by God. To be shamed means to lose honor. That's what happened when Jesus came to this earth. He lost his honor. But now, once again, he's exalted. He is exalted and honored above all. He is at the center of the praise of heaven. He has gone from being the most rejected to the most exalted. So that's my first point, who is Jesus? My second point, what has he done? Look at verse six. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, <clears throat> Excuse me. and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now verse six is a direct quote from Isaiah 16. This was a prophecy about 700 years before the time of Christ. It was a prophecy that God was going to start a very unique building program, and he started it in a very strange way. He took the stone that nobody wanted, the one that was rejected, and he made that one his cornerstone. God basically said, I'm going to take the one that they don't want, I'm going to take the rejected one, and I'm going to make him my cornerstone. I'm going to make him the center of this new building. Jesus is the foundation of God's new temple. And God had promised hundreds of years before that he was going to build something glorious on this new foundation. It would be a new temple. 
Now, the temple in biblical times was the center of worship for God's people. It was where God's presence dwelled. It was kind of like God's house. But Isaiah and others promised us a new house, which would be built with people. It wouldn't be a physical house in Jerusalem. It would be built with people who put their faith in Christ. We would be the living stones in this grand building project with Jesus as the cornerstone. No longer would God's presence be limited to the temple in Jerusalem. This new temple would be fulfilled in Christ and his people, the church. Now, Jared is going to expound more on this next week, particularly verse 5. I don't know if you noticed this, but Peter also quotes Psalm 118.22, which says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But the verse goes on to say, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Church, what a marvelous plan this is. God took the rejected stone and made it the center of his building. He took his crucified son, the one they hated and rejected, and he used their brutal torture to save us, to bring us into God's eternal, overflowing love and joy, to bring us into God's family and and into his embrace. He took the one that they despised and shamed and made him into the savior of the world. Jesus is the most important and valuable person in the whole world. He is our Savior. And what a Savior he is. That brings us to my third point. How do we respond to him? How do we respond to him? Let's look at verses 7 and 8. We're going to camp out here for a little bit. It says, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now the NIV adds a little twist to this. It interprets the first verse a little different. It says, now to you who believe, it says this stone is precious. Peter, again, is quoting from the old time. This time it's, it's Isaiah 8, 14. And what he's saying is not only has the rejected stone become the cornerstone, but this cornerstone is going to cause many to stumble and many to be offended. That brings us to an incredibly important question that God is asking us today. And that question is this. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? How are you going to respond to him? See, there are only two choices. And the decision that you make is the most important decision that you will ever make. It's a decision that will determine if you face an eternity of joy or an eternity of suffering. And here are the choices. You can either believe in Jesus and come to him or you can reject him. 
Let me talk first about rejecting him. You can refuse to come to Jesus. You can ignore him. You can resist him. You can build your life on different foundations. There is a frightening contrast in verse 7 between the final destiny of those who believe and the final destiny of those who don't believe. Those who believe in Jesus will be honored as he is honored. Those who don't believe will stumble and will be judged. The gospel is a message that divides. There is no neutral ground. Leonard Gopalt says this, Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin, falling short of one's creator and redeemer and thereby of one's destiny. You cannot just step over Jesus and you can't go around him. You have to confront him. What will you do with Jesus? If you decide to do nothing or to ignore him, that is a decision to reject him. Now the obvious question is why would you do this? Why would anyone reject Christ? Why do people stumble over Christ? Well, because the gospel is offensive. It's terribly offensive. It's, it's, a, it's a stumbling block. This is why Jesus was hated and eventually killed. He said things that not only confused people, but offended them. Jesus taught that we're not good enough to get to heaven. Mark 10, 18. Jesus came to this earth because we're not good. We're all sinners and rebels and lawbreakers. We, we put things above God. Our hearts are selfish and evil, and we all deserve hell. No exceptions. Now, this is not going to win you a popularity contest. This is like licking everyone's lollipops. I mean, it's not going to go over well. <laughs> Jesus also taught that he was and is God, John 10, 30. He taught that he was fully God and fully man. This is not easy for people to understand, let alone believe. Jesus also taught that he was the only way, the exclusive way to get to heaven. That's John 14, 6. Bringing this truth out is like breaking everyone's crayons. It is incredibly offensive to tell others that they can't get to heaven apart from the finished white work of Christ on the cross. It mortally offends the high estimation we have of our own goodness 
and our ability to earn salvation. Jesus also taught that he is Lord. In other words, he's the king. He gets to tell us what to do. He leads and we follow. This violently cuts across our autonomy. We do not want to be told what to do. We want the freedom to be able to do whatever we want. And Jesus stands directly in the way of that. Jesus gives people a lot of reasons to stumble. If you find yourself stumbling over Christ or building your life on another foundation, Scripture has dire warnings for you, severe warnings for you. Jesus himself has dire warnings. In Matthew 21, which Joseph read earlier, it's the parable of the tenants. Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders who rejected him again and again. And I want to read Jesus' words immediately after the parable of the tenants. This is how Jesus, this is what he said immediately after them. He said point blank that he is that cornerstone that was promised, and he expands this imagery to include judgment. Listen to what he says. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone, that's Christ, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. If you stumble over Jesus, if you do not see him as precious, if you have not repented of your sins and come to him, then you will be broken in pieces by Jesus at the judgment. You will be crushed by the rock of Christ. He will not spare anyone that has rejected him. And keep in mind that your rejection of Christ doesn't make Christianity any less true. Even though you reject him, he is still the cornerstone. Now I have to mention just briefly verse 8 because it could be interpreted as an excuse for not coming to Christ. In verse 8b it says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And you might be tempted to think, well, wait a second. Am I not responsible for the things that I do? Am I destined in this way? The Bible sometimes teaches truths that seem contradictory but are not. Like here. This passage, as well as many others, clearly teaches that we are responsible for the, we are responsible for the choices and decisions that we make. There are consequences for our actions, and we will be held accountable. And some of those choices have eternal consequences. But this passage also teaches that God is sovereign, that he is in control, 
And apart from God's intervention in our lives, we will reject him. We will run away from him. We need God to come after us, to, to stop us in our tracks and to rescue us. There's mystery in this. And there should be mystery when it comes to God. But please don't let this mystery keep you from coming to Christ. Come to Jesus right now. You are not too far away. Your sins are not too great for him to forgive. Don't build your life on foundations that will crumble. Turn from your sins. Believe in him and become a living stone. So the first choice is to reject him. The second choice is to come to him. I love how it says this in verse 4. It says, as you come to him. Coming to him is what we're called to do. And it's something as Christians we're called to do on a regular basis. We come to him. We enjoy a personal relationship with him. That's why Peter makes it clear that for those who believe in Jesus, he is precious to us. He is more valuable to us than anything in the whole world. It's one of the ways you can tell if you are a Christian is that you love Jesus more than anyone or anything else. And when you come to Christ, you become part of the spiritual house of God. Jesus is the cornerstone of this new spiritual house. He's the foundation. And in the same way that God chose Christ for this building, he's chosen us to be a part of this building too. We aren't the cornerstone, but we get to be stones in this building. Now, one of the most amazing things about being a Christian is that we are united to Christ. We become one with him, and we share most things with him. So he's the living stone. We're also living stones. He's the cornerstone. We're the other stones. He was chosen by God. We're chosen by God. He was rejected and shamed. We, at times, are rejected and put to shame. He is honored. We will be honored. Peter is writing this to those who are experiencing rejection by unbelievers, and it's causing all kinds of trials and hardships. They were seeking to bring the light of the gospel to a dark world, and they were getting a lot of resistance and pushback. I read this quote about what these believers were facing 2,000 years ago, and I was stunned because it perfectly describes what we're facing today. Listen to this quote by J.H. Eliot. He said, they were facing a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community, that's us, to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. Well, that about sums up the society we live in, right? And it shouldn't surprise us. This shouldn't surprise us. The unbelief of those who reject Christ was already predicted in the Old Testament prophecies that we read, and really throughout the entire Old Testament, 
the whole thing is about God's people rejecting God, disobeying him, breaking his laws, worshiping idols. The rejection of Christ and Christianity by our friends and neighbors and family members should not surprise us and shouldn't cause us to doubt our own faith. If we come to Jesus and believe in him, we're going to be rejected too. And verse 7 tells us that it is an honor to be rejected like he was. You know, it wasn't that long ago that people were more tolerant of differing views. They'd say things like, well, live and let live and do whatever's right for you and don't judge. Those days are gone. That ship has sailed. We live in a society that has dropped the gloves. It's a hockey reference. When you drop your gloves, you're getting into a fight. They, they have dropped the gloves when it comes to being judgmental. If you come to Christ and believe in Christ, you will be canceled. It doesn't matter how nice you are. You're going to be canceled. The, the idea that we can just be a really nice coworker or neighbor and people will leave us alone and won't judge us, that's unrealistic. And, and we can't just avoid the controversial issues. We can't be like the Quakers. They basically believe everything in order to avoid controversy. You can be a Muslim or a Catholic or a Hindu, and you don't have to change to be a Quaker. The problem is they aren't building anything. They have no foundation. Covenant Fellowship, everything we believe is controversial. Everything we believe is controversial, and, and we can't shrink from this. We have a message that, that God has given to us. And we have to take that message to a lost and dying world. We can't hold on to this message. We can't keep it to ourselves. We have to give it away. And this message, this gospel message, will stumble people. It, it will offend people. We, we can't hide from that. And Peter encourages us. He's saying that when people reject you or shame you, that's not a sign that God is rejecting you. It's not failure. It's an opportunity for us to identify and relate to the rejection that Christ has experienced here on earth. There is an honor to being shamed and rejected for Christ. Verse 7 says, the honor is for you who believe. We as a church get to share in his sufferings and relate to him in his rejection. But here's the good news. The shame and rejection you experience for the sake of the gospel will not last forever. You will be honored. And as Jesus says in Matthew 5, you will be blessed he said, blessed are you when men insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. See, rejection in our society and other societies, it, 
it brings shame and dishonor. In Japan, if a samurai warrior brings shame to his family, he can commit what's called seppuku, which is ritual suicide that seeks to, he kills himself, and it seeks to restore honor to the family. We don't have to try to restore our honor when we're rejected or shamed. Jesus promises that he's going to take care of that. That he will honor us when we are rejected. He will bless us and he will reward us forever. Are you willing to share the gospel with people? Are you willing to, to make people uncomfortable? Are you willing to risk your reputation? Are you willing to share in the sufferings of Christ? And let me just say one other thing about those who come to Christ. There's a phrase in verse 4 that really stuck out to me. It was when it says, in the sight of God. But in the sight of God. He's chosen and precious. There's a contrast between in the sight of men and in the sight of God. And I want to say this to you, church. How God sees you is what matters. The world might reject you. They might see you as a failure or a nobody. What matters is how he sees you. And this is hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to disconnect how God feels about us from our actions, from our obedience or disobedience. It's hard not to think that God thinks just like us. Like if somebody sins against us and betrays us and rejects us and disobeys us, it's really hard to love someone like that. I mean, we can only take so much. We have trouble disconnecting our feelings towards someone from their actions or their lack of actions. But church, this is where God is not like us. And this is where God is at his best. He pours out overflowing love and joy and grace on sinners. I was desperately trying to think of an illustration the best I could come up with, a mother of babies or very young children. That mom can love this child even though the kid is yelling and screaming and making dirty diapers and having tantrums, whatever. The mom's love can power through that mess. Do you see what I'm saying? That mom has so much overflowing love. She can absorb those things and power through that sin and continue to love that child. This is what God does for us. He rejoices, listen, he rejoices over sinners. He rejoices over sinners that repent, that come to him. He rejoices over those that have disobeyed him and come to him anyway. This is the heart of Christ. You may not be chosen by the world. You may not be, you might be despised and rejected, you might be nothing special. But in the sight of God, you are chosen and you are precious. He chose you and you belong to him. It doesn't matter how, if nobody else chooses you, you have been chosen by the God of the universe. 
and he has made you his own precious child. He's made you his object of towering love. And it's not connected to our performance. It's all because of his unending love and overflowing grace that powers through your sin. This is how God sees you. He sees you with eyes of love. What matters is not how others see you and not even how you see yourself. What matters in this life and in the next is how God sees you. In covenant fellowship, you are chosen and precious to God. Let's pray. As our eyes are closed, I just had a sense that God wanted to reach out to those who don't know him, who have not come to him. And I believe the Lord is calling you to come to him right now to repent of your sin, to turn away from these crumbling foundations that you have been trying to build on and to surrender your life to him, to become a living stone, to build your life on Jesus Christ. And I want to give you a chance to do that right now. And I want to ask you just to pray with me if you want to do that. Jesus is here. He wants to forgive you. And so I want to just ask you to pray with me. You don't have to pray out loud. You can just pray quietly with me. You can just repeat after me and pray this prayer to God. He's here. He hears your prayers. And he loves to forgive sinners that come to him. Jesus, I recognize that I, I'm a sinner. I've run away from you. I've turned away from you. I've loved things more than you. Please forgive me for my many sins. I come to you now for forgiveness. And I surrender my life to you. I believe that you died on the cross to save me. And I'm asking you to receive me and to make me one of your living stones. In Jesus' name.